Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 2, Kenneth Supreme McGriff. He's a legend from Queens who used to earn up to $200,000 a day, who supposedly helped launder money from one of the biggest rap labels of the year 2000, and most importantly, tried to murder 50 Cent. His name... Kenneth Supreme McGriff. His story began on September 19, 1960, in South Jamaica, Queens, New York City. He was the youngest of three children. His parents were quiet and easygoing people. Both worked for the New York City Public Transportation Authority. They provided young Kenneth with a stable living environment. With the decline of Harlem, struck by sinking real estate prices and rising crime rates, the African-American middle class found security in Queens, its small houses, tree-lined streets, and private backyards. However, in the mid-60s, Pops Freeman, a boss from Harlem, saw an opportunity and moved his business into the south side of Jamaica, bringing in his bad habits, illegal bets, drugs, and violence that upset this once peaceful neighborhood. Legend has it that the Italian mafioso Don Vito Genovese offered Pops Freeman a piece of land in Jamaica to reward him for not making a witness statement against some of his crew. Kenneth McGriff grew up in that environment. While a student at the Catherine and Count Basie Junior School, he frequented a movement started by the Nation of Islam called the Five Percenters. Founded in the 1960s with the African-American community, This group refers to a simple ideology. They believe that only 10% of the world's population is conscious of the truth and chooses to hide it from the ignorant 85% of the population. The remaining 5% aware of this conspiracy took as their mission to enlighten the ignorant. The members of this culture and religious movement traditionally appointed each other with mystical names such as divine, king, justice, or even knowledge. Kenneth McGriff found himself more and more involved and soon was baptized Supreme. Despite his quest for the truth, Kenneth McGriff, or Supreme, was not oblivious to the reality of the hood. Rising unemployment closed many doors for young African Americans, and Supreme could not ignore the lure of money, so he started working for some drug dealers in the area. He helped out, looked after batches of drugs, or hid them well in out-of-sight locations. His presence within the five percenters, as well as his strong sense of self-discipline, brought him to the attention of important drug lords in his neighborhood. Despite his pint-sized stature, only five foot four, his reputation continued to grow. 
1981, Supreme had matured, and with a few friends, he decided to open his own organization. They took it upon themselves to find a name that would truly resonate through the streets. Thanks to Supreme's ego, they decided to call themselves the Supreme Team. He kicked it off by selling small quantities of cocaine and heroin. The Bailey Park houses where Supreme grew up soon became too small for the Supreme Team, so they began to intrude on the Queensbridge houses, the neighborhood next door that was about to see the emergence of Nas, Mob Deep, and many more. The Supreme Team's reputation made a groundbreaking leap forward. Despite the rising tensions between communities, Supreme decided to get closer to the Latino community to benefit from connections for its cocaine trafficking. The Supreme Team still wanted more and wanted to supply themselves directly at the source. With his many contacts within the five percenters, Supreme managed to negotiate directly with Lorenzo Fat Cat Nichols, one of the biggest drug lords in New York in the 1980s. The machine was launched, and the Supreme team made its traffic grow along with its influence in the heart of Queens. Money was flowing, and it was also getting to some of the crew members' heads. It would not be uncommon to see the Supreme team flown around town in their luxury cars, displaying large stacks of cash and proudly wearing big red leather jackets upon which you can read Supreme in large letters on the back. Could this have inspired a major clothing brand? Supreme was active on all fronts. He not only had to handle the very extravagant members of his team, he also had to protect his assets from rival gangs and small-time crooks who started to get very interested in him. In 1985, one of Supreme's safe houses was raided and $80,000 in cash was taken. Enraged, Supreme set up a real security arsenal. Spotters with walkie-talkies were perched on the highest buildings in the area. Supreme wanted to avoid any problems ahead of time that way, but many of his team members preferred to enforce respect using violence. Supreme may have kept one of his eyes on his crew and the other on the police, but he couldn't stop Miles from talking for some extra cash. And one of these ended up tipping off the police. There was an excellent chance that Supreme would be present in the apartment. Shortly after that, the police would arrive at Supreme's apartment and arrest him. He was caught with 150 grams of heroin, two kilos of cocaine, nine firearms, and $25,000 in cash. One would think that there must be a guy watching over drug dealers. As the police had to intervene quickly, they did not get the warrant written up correctly. Supreme's lawyers latched onto it, and it didn't take much to get the judge to convict him only on minor charges of carrying illegal firearms and drug possession. Supreme realized how lucky he had been and organized a small party before serving his sentence. Among the guests were all of the drug heavyweights, celebrating the fast life that many dealers choose to live. Supreme, in top form that night, took the microphone and dedicated a toast to his partner, Lorenzo Fat Cat. Supreme also knew that to sustain his business, he needed to introduce everyone to the one who would be taking over his position in the Supreme team during his absence. Supreme's nephew, Gerald Prince Miller, only 22 years old. 
Every new leader has his own style, and Prince knew exactly how to make his work. Threats, beatings, torture, and murder. Nothing could get in his way to control the game. From prison, Supreme didn't like Prince's methods, but he could see that the numbers were good. Around the summer of 1986, the Supreme team was earning $30,000 a day. This fortune did not, however, calm his crew's exuberance. Nouveau reach from the ghetto now owned yachts, luxury cars, and wore Rolexes around each one of their wrists. Days and months went by, and then Supreme got out in 1987. Thanks to the huge profits he made through drugs, he was once again organizing parties, basketball tournaments, and concerts set in South Jamaica, offering a stage to current rappers such as Run DMC, LL Cool J, or younger artists on Russell Simmons' new label, Def Jam. Supreme, who had always been a popular person in the neighborhood, became the Robin Hood of his community. Word on the street was that Supreme's philanthropic side inspired scriptwriter Barry Michael Cooper to create Nino Brown's character in his film, New Jack City. Supreme got his position back as head of the team, but again, found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. On November 6, 1987, the FBI and the police raided an apartment, caught him in possession of a kilo of cocaine, several weapons, and surveillance equipment. This raid would be the beginning of the end of the Supreme Team's Golden Age, a group that once had 110 members and earned $200,000 a day. Trials followed one after another, and in 1989, Supreme admitted running a criminal organization and was given a 12-year prison sentence. The Supreme team was only a shadow of its former self when in 1991, Gerald Prince and 11 other members were convicted on 10 different types of charges, including drug trafficking, racketeering, intimidation of witnesses, and murder. Overwhelming evidence amounted to convictions ranging from 14-year sentences to seven lifetimes for ringleader Gerald Prince. Supreme got away with much less. In 1995, halfway through his sentence, he was offered parole and returned to the street. He realized that in six years' time, the neighborhood had changed a lot. The successful drug-dealing years were over. The legendary drug lords were all dead or in prison, and that a new business was making some young kids very rich and famous. And that was rap. Run DMC, LL Cool J, and the other hip-hop artists he used to sponsor had become big stars and role models to aspire to. These were rappers whose look and lifestyle had been inspired by the Supreme Team and other local gangsters. The ex-drug lord is convinced that he can turn this situation to his advantage and change the course of his life. He's got a plan. During his many years in prison, he had read a number of novels by Donald Goins, street player, inner-city hoodlum, and black gangster. Urban fiction set in the heart of the African-American community. Ever since... He was sure that he could adapt these books into films, and getting rappers to star in them would bring him a huge success. All he had to do was find the right people. A friend of his advised him to visit the set of a rap music video being filmed in his neighborhood. 
This is where he'd have a life-changing encounter with Irv Gotti. Irving Lorenzo, a.k.a. Irv Gotti, a native of Hollis, Queens, producer and artistic director, had been hanging around the world of hip-hop for a long time. He contributed to the rebranding of the classic label Def Jam and founded in 1997 Murder, Inc., a name inspired by the renowned criminal mafia organization run by Bugsy Siegel and Louis Lepke. Just with the handshake and the mention of Supreme's name, Irv Gotti froze. Like all his teenage friends, Irv Gotti had grown up hearing about the legendary exploits and adventures of the Supreme team. He obviously did not need convincing and wanted to help this ex-dealer forge his film adaptation of Donald Goins, Crime Partners. Supreme found his way in, and Irv Gotti reinforced his new label street cred by hanging out with gangster Kenneth Supreme McGriff. The key artists on this label were rapper Ja Rule and R&B singer Ashanti. The label's concept was genius, a melodious and explicit gangster pop that could be listened to everywhere by everyone. Gold and platinum records were rolling in, music videos were being played nonstop, and dollars were pouring from all directions. Irv Gotti was living the life of his dreams between Ego Trip, MDMA, and Easy Women. He was able to help Supreme produce his film. Irv Gotti invested $50,000 and ensured that the main artist on the label would be part of the project, along with getting Jay-Z to appear on a soundtrack, which was the best asset for Supreme because it got them a $500,000 cash advance from Universal. As all was going so swimmingly well, someone was on a mission to ruin Murder, Inc., a young rapper from South Jamaica, Queens, Curtis Jackson, better known as 50 Cents. He, too, had grown up listening to the famous stories of his hood's glory days. His mother, Sabrina Jackson, had even worked for the Supreme Team before dying at the age of 23. She was found poisoned to death in her apartment, the gas stove still on. Street Talk had it that Supreme Team wanted to deliver a message. This is probably why one of 50 Cent's first tracks, produced by the iconic DJ from Run DMC, Jam Master J, would explode. With the title Ghetto Quran, 50 Cent details the story of the Supreme Team. Far from being flattered by this tribute, Supreme sent an emissary to 50 Cent, insinuating never to mention his name in his tracks again. The timing was not ideal for Supreme. Snoop Dogg and Ice-T had just signed on to play the lead roles in his film, Crime Partners, and Supreme did not appreciate his old life coming back to haunt his new projects. The feud between 50 Cent and Murder, Inc. continued over an affair about a stolen gold chain. 50 Cent's favorite victim was Ja Rule, Murder, Inc.'s headliner. 50 Cent was constantly insulting his talent, credibility, and even his manhood. Witnessing this escalation, Supreme fought back. He saw in these attacks against Murder, Inc. a threat to his interests, so he tried to calm things down, soothe tensions, and even met up with 50 Cent. But it had already gone too far, and 50 Cent would destroy his rivals as it became his personal vendetta. What used to be a simple beef on tracks took a whole new turn on May 24, 2000. While 50 Cent was driving with a friend on 161st Street in South Jamaica, 
a stranger came up to him and shot him nine times, almost at close range. Fifty Cent was hit in his chest, hip, face, jaw, and hand. He was left for dead, but he survived, and a legend was born. When he came out of the hospital, he refused to collaborate with the police, but sent an eerie message on his next track to the ones he held accountable. If his enemies wanted to silence him for good, they ended up giving him even more strength. Supreme, on the other hand, continued to pursue his film project. He had become a regular visitor of the Murder, Inc. offices, and from there ran his supposedly legal affairs. Comings and goings aroused the police's suspicions, who still were very interested in what their old buddies were up to. Supreme seemed to have gotten his confidence back, which made him less careful. When he got arrested on a scorching New York summer afternoon, he gets arrested not revealing that he had triggered a chain reaction that would bring Murder, Inc. down. Caught with $11,000 on him, he simply declared to the police, Cash, you just caught me on a bad day because I usually have a lot more in my pockets. His answer had been witty, but Supreme had once again become a suspect. In 2001, another matter would put him to the test. Eric Smith, a.k.a. E-Moneybags, was shot and killed. Another dead rapper, but not only that, Two years before this event, E-Moneybags had killed Black Just, Supreme's lieutenant and friend. At that time, E-Moneybags was aiming at Supreme and Black Just. Supreme was unharmed, but refused to bring Black Just to the hospital and left him to bleed to death on the pavement. So when E-Moneybags was murdered, Supreme was obviously the number one suspect. Later on, during the trial, it was proven that once he was informed about E-Moneybags' death, Supreme had sent a message to Irv Gotti, blaming him for having missed the party. 2002, another murder case. This time, it was Run DMC's legendary DJ, Jam Master J, who was found dead in his studio. Of course, the close ties between J and 50 Cent made Supreme the number one suspect behind the murder. The stranglehold around Supreme was tightening. The authorities started wondering more and more what linked Supreme to Murder, Inc. In January 2003, the FBI and NYPD raided the label studios. They seized mobile phones and hard drives. Between 1999 and 2003, Murder, Inc. generated $200 million dollars. Investigators suspected that Supreme was using the music business to launder money. Fraud, attempted murders, drug trafficking. After two years of thorough investigations by the FBI, ATF, IBS, and police, the 2005 trial could become fatal for Supreme, especially since one of his associates, after being threatened with a long prison sentence, accused him of attempted murder against 50 cents. He even quoted what he said after the gunshots. I got him. They got him coming out of his grandmother's house, and he got into a car, and that's when he got shot. There was a lot of blood. Irv Gotti was worried as well, but about another reason. He was accused, like his label, of money laundering. As part of financing the movie Crime Partners, 
and the assets of the company were frozen. In the investigators' eyes, Gotti and Supreme were clearly partners in crime. They uncovered wire transfers for a total amount of $500,000 between Murder, Inc. and Supreme. Def Jam and the label defended and justified themselves by arguing that it was money meant to finance the production of the film's soundtrack. Celebrities such as Jay-Z and Fat Joe even testified. Supreme's lawyer announced that even though his client had a dark past, he was trying to live an honest life. In December of 2005, Irv Gotti looked calm, but was a mental and financial mess and couldn't stop the decline of his musical empire. For Supreme, things were even more complicated. On January 8th, 2007, as the court tried to reach a verdict, the DA assessed the situation. Between 1997 and 2003, the supposedly ex-dealer distributed 30 kilos of cocaine, 30 kilos of heroin, and 1.5 kilos of crack. The DA added Emmanuel Mosley's testimony to the case, a hitman who would confirm killing three people on Supreme's orders, a deal that had earned Mosley $25,000 per hit. On the list was the notorious E-Money Bags and a former member of Supreme's team, Nathan Green Born May. The verdict was in, a life sentence for Kenneth Supreme McGriff without parole. He managed by an inch to escape the death penalty the district attorney had requested. It's a well-known fact that the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Honor and fame won't keep you from falling from grace. After living through glory, fortune, and impunity, Supreme may well finish his life living in the high-security prison of ADX Florence, also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. He was now out of luck. 50 Cent will become one of the most famous rappers of the early 2000s. He'd soon sign a record deal with Eminem and Dr. Dre and went on to sell more than 8 million copies on his first album, Get Rich or Die Trying. His mentor, Jam Master Jay, wasn't there to witness his triumph. His murderer still roams the streets. Supreme, on the other hand, can't roam the streets any longer, but is still trying to get out. In 2016, as a last cry for help, he applied for a presidential pardon from President Barack Obama. Mr. President, I implore you to correct this gross miscarriage of justice with a stroke of your pen. My true request is to be restored to my proper place in the legal process before my constitutional right to testify was violated. To restore my guaranteed right to prove my innocence. My testimony is vital to my defense, and only I can attest to the truth. A letter that remains unanswered. Find the playlists related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Zeeple. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com.